You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here. So it's about four years ago, we were at Disney World as a family, and we went to kind of our tradition when we go to Disney World is the last night that we're there, we go to the Boardwalk uh, Resort, because right behind the hotel, they have these Coney Island um, carnival-type games where you can win prizes and whatever, and being the extremely competitive person that I am, I like to win and show off in front of my wife. And uh, so they have this basketball game that's there, and if you make one shot, you win a small basketball, two for medium, three for a large. Anyway, so I put down, I forget what it is, five or ten bucks, and they give you seven shots. And so I make four of the seven shots. And it's important for you to know that, that your pastor has got game, even at his age. All right? So I, I make four of the seven shots. I get Livy this large uh, princess basketball that she wanted. And then Mia and Xander wanted a volleyball. And so they got that too. It was amazing. And uh, so then we go to this other game, which is right next to it, which is um, the object of the game is you have to take these lobsters and put it in these spinning water pots. And then they have this little hammer that you hit it and it launches them into the spinning water pots. And so I've just come off a big victory. So I put 10 bucks down and uh, I'm like, I'm going to win this. I'm going to win big because my daughter Livy wanted this, this uh, stuffed animal that was a uh, penguin that was dressed like a ninja because if you're a penguin, why not dress like a ninja? Um, and so anyway, so I, they give me 12 lobsters and all I have to do is get two in there. So I'm like, well, the question is what else am I going to get besides the ninja penguin? So I channel my inner Thor. I grab the hammer. People say we look alike. And... Uh, <laughs> That was too much. I wanted you to laugh, but not that much. So, so, so anyway, uh, so I just, I start hammering away and I strike out on all 12. I'm very frustrated because now I look bad in front of my wife. I put five more dollars down because I don't want to look bad in front of my family. And then I strike out again. And, uh, and then my daughter Mia says, well, hey, can I try? And I'm thinking, like, if I didn't get it, you're not getting it. But I was, I was like, yeah, of course. That's for the kids. It's for the kids. So I put another five bucks down. And uh, you know, now I'm in for, like, 20 bucks, by the way, on this, this stuffed animal that probably costs, like, 80 cents to make. Um, and so I say, okay. And then the kids can try. And uh, I know it's not going to happen, but it's the price of having fun. My son says he wants to try. He's like, Dad, give me the hammer. I don't do this for myself. Which, by the way, only an eight-year-old starts making declarations like this. I don't do this for myself. I do this for Livy, who wants the ninja penguin. So anyway, he starts going. He puts one in on the second try. And I don't know if I'm more proud of him or upset with him <laughs> that he did what I couldn't do. So uh, the girls strike out on their quest. But the kid who works behind the counter, he keeps putting lobsters on the counter. I mean, there's nobody else there playing. So he keeps putting lobsters on the, on the counter for us to keep playing, and he's not charging us. So we're about 15 minutes into this, like, lobster flying affair. And, uh, and the kid says, well, hey, I see two lobsters in the pot. And my wife, because she just can't even help herself uh, with her level of honesty, she's like, no, Xander only put one in. And I'm like, woman, 
stop, stop. And, uh, and, and she's like, and he's like, well, I don't know. I, I see two. And so he gives Livy the ninja penguin. And then he gives uh, Mia and Xander a prize too. I mean, it's like, hey, I, you know, uh, for the amount of money I spent, I probably paid his salary for the night. Uh, and so then Livy uh, says to the kids, like, what's your name? And he says, oh, my name's Noah. And, uh, and he, she says, well, I'm naming my penguin Noah. And so this is Livy with the penguin, maybe. Oh, there it is. Um, first service, it didn't show up. I had to draw a picture of Livy with the penguin. And so anyway, but that's Livy with the ninja penguin named Noah. Now, my kids were proclaiming it a Disney miracle. You know, it's a Disney miracle that this happened. We didn't know it was only one, but two appeared. And, 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 and I'm thinking, that's, it, it's, it was not a miracle. It was nice, but it's not a miracle. It was a nice kid who didn't want his, a dad to look like a total loser in front of his children. Because let's be honest, the only miracle that happens at Disney is how quickly your money disappears. The other miracle that happens at Disney is how you can walk 12 hours for four straight days and when you get home, still be up five pounds. So that's the other miracle that happens at, at Disney. And so, but, but there's, something, there's something about a miracle that even those who don't believe recognize the power of it because oh, I'm not a believer. But if I saw a miracle, I'd believe. Um, and then others will try to explain miracles away as over-exaggerations. Uh, so before we get started, as we look at some of the miracles of Jesus today, I, I want to start by defining a miracle. Uh, because sometimes we look at, oh, the miracle of life or whatever, and, which it is, but it's not a miracle in, in this sense. All right, so uh, my definition, it's not in your notes, just jot it down somewhere uh, if you're a note taker. If not, I'm going to say it and you'll forget it in 10 seconds. Um, but uh, a miracle is God intervening in the natural order by overpowering natural law. Let me say it again. A miracle is God intervening in the natural order by overpowering natural law. Now, if the first verse of the Bible is true, that God created everything, then it stands to reason that miracles are very possible. But once again, for those of us who are, are Christians, that uh, isn't usually the issue that we have with miracles. The, the problem we have with miracles is that God does not follow a pattern. In fact, if you decide to read the Gospels, what you'll find is, is that Jesus records, depending on the Gospel, he records about 40, uh, performs about 40 miracles. And the issue with that is, is that Jesus never does the same miracle the same way. Uh, he never does a miracle the same way twice. One time he touches a guy's face and heals him. Another time, he just gives the word. He's not, even, he's not even around. Another time, he spits on the ground, forms mud, sticks it in the guy's face, and then tells the guy to go wash in this pool, and that's what makes, uh, that's what makes him healed. And, so, and it becomes a challenge because we say, well, man, I need God to do something in my life. Well, there's no formula to follow. And so what I want to do is take us on a bit of a journey as to what happens. We've spent, we spent, what, 10 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount of Jesus giving this most famous sermon. And what we're going to do now is pick up right after. Jesus has just finished giving the Sermon on the Mount. The next verse says Jesus comes down from the mountain. And we're going to see Jesus growing in popularity. Big crowds are following. Jesus is beginning to peak to the zenith of his popularity in his earthly ministry. He's calling his disciples. He's preaching in different cities. And in chapter 8 of the the Gospel of Matthew, we see five different miracles that happen, all pointing to this one thing, that Jesus is the Messiah. And it then gives us a glimpse into the heart of God, 
for those who might be in need of a miracle today. And listen, maybe you came in today and you are in need of a miracle. Maybe it's a miracle for healing, or maybe it's a financial miracle, or a miracle for God to bring someone into your life. Who knows? Maybe it's a miracle for God to bring someone, take someone out of your life. Uh, but, or some other thing. But the thing that we need to, to know and recognize and understand is that God has not forgotten. He hasn't forgotten you. He's at work and he's going to do something through the situation that you're in if we continue to trust and hope in him. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 8 in verse 1, and here's what we read. He says, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leper was cleansed. His leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, three things that we're gonna look at when it comes to miracles. The first is this, is that miracles reveal God's power. If you're a note taker, miracles reveal God's power. Let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever, and, and, and you, you need, probably need to be about my age to, to, for this to be the case, but how many of you actually have had the chicken pox? Oh yeah, a bunch of you, very good. Well, not good. I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> I, I got the chicken pox. You, uh, I got the chicken pox in the third grade, and in fact, I am the only person that I've ever known who wanted to get the chicken pox and actively sought them out. And the reason why is I was just desperate to get out of school, because all my friends who got the chicken pox were out of school for anywhere from a week to two weeks. And I would just ask, like, what did you do? And they're like, oh, I just sat around and watched TV. And I'm like, dude, that's one of my favorite things to do. And so, um, so whenever someone had the chicken pox, I would go visit them. And they'd be, they, people would be like, wow, this kid, you know, he just loves his friends. Like, I, I was just trying to get a vacation uh, from, from going to school. And so, but then I got chicken pox. And it was horrible. Because uh, then I got all these other things that they didn't tell me about. They didn't tell me I was going to get weird spots all over my body. And that I was going to have this insatiable desire to itch. And that I couldn't itch or it was going to leave a scar. In fact, I still have a scar on the side of my face because there was just one that would not stop itching. And one day I, was just, I just went crazy. And I, it, the thing ripped off. And, and, and anyway, it's still with me to remind me of my poor choices. And, um, and then you got to, had to put a cream on, if you remember. And uh, you'd have like polka dots all over your body. And then you get quarantined. And I didn't, I didn't realize that, is that, um, you know, like the only person who would visit you is like your mom, you know, like here's your food. And then they would just back away slowly. Like, don't touch me. Don't breathe on me. Don't even look at me here. Just take it and go. And so anyway, and then I, you know, and, and you get to the door and you're like, what's going on out there? What's happening in the outside world? You know, I, I didn't know what was going on, but that's the closest that most of us will ever get to leprosy. Uh, because leprosy, and once again, it's not called leprosy anymore. It's called Hansen's disease. But um, leprosy isn't what they thought it was initially, which was the rotting of flesh. It's actually the deadening of the pain centers of the body. And so leprosy is this thing that would start small under the skin, below the surface, and it grows. It spreads throughout your body. And so the first symptom would be a deadening of the nerves and a loss of feeling. And this is why lepers were disfigured. It's because they couldn't feel when uh, if they had their hand and they were holding a pan and the pan was hot, they, they had no feeling to know that it was, it was burning them. If they ever, um, they were swinging a hammer and, and they didn't hit the nail, they hit their thumb. Uh, they, they didn't feel it. You, you ever hit your thumb with a hammer? 
right? Yeah, you never thanked God for that. Um, you may have called on his name, but you never thanked him. Um, but, right? but that's what happens. Is that, and, and, and you should, right? The ability to feel pain is, 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 a, is a good thing. Um, but that's what happens. It's, there's a loss of that. And then that's where the disfigurement comes in. And so Ma- Matthew records something here that's so powerful. And what he says is that the leper doesn't say um, to Jesus, if you're willing, you can heal me. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. This a leper is asking to be cleansed because unclean was his life. Lepers were forbidden to come within six feet of a healthy person. They were the OG uh, social distancers uh, back then. They were like, hey, six feet away. That's what Dr. Fauci says. And, uh, or will say, that's a prophecy. And, uh, and so if they, if they were downwind and uh, the wind was blowing from the leper, they had to be 150 feet away from a healthy person. One rabbi said that it was totally acceptable to throw stones at a leper to force them to keep their distance from those who were clean. And once you contracted leprosy, your life as you knew it, knew it was over. They would kick you out of the city, your home, kick you out of the city that you lived in. Uh, you had to live in uninhabited areas or outside of the city walls where the garbage heap was. And if anyone came near, you had to shout, unclean, unclean. Unclean was this man's life and there was no future because there was no cure. Now, my favorite part of the story is what he says in verse three. When uh, in verse two, he says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And it says this, it says that Jesus put out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing. This is probably the first physical touch that this person has had in years. And he says, I'm willing, be cleansed. And then Jesus commands the man to go to Jerusalem and offer a sacrifice as a testimony. A testimony to who? testimony of the priests and the religious leaders, and there's a reason for that. All the way back in uh, the Law of Moses in Exodus chapter 13, there's an outline as to what to do when someone contracts leprosy. Now, for, to protect the rest of the nation from getting it and, and others, they would put, that, put out the person who had leprosy and quarantine that person. But then, so uh, what you have in Leviticus 13 is this is what you do when someone has leprosy. And then in Leviticus 14, there's this amazing possibility. And here's what it says, and it's in your notes as well. It's right up here. You'll see it. It's, uh, there you go. Uh, survey says. And um, uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. Uh, he shall be brought before the priest. The rest of the chapter goes on to talk about what type of offering the person should offer. And the healing was to show the leaders in Jerusalem. The thing that I love about Leviticus 14 is that there was no cure for leprosy. What God was doing was giving an allowance for the miraculous to take place that should this happen, this is what you were supposed to do. And so uh, the healing was to show those in Jerusalem that the Messiah was here. And that this was their, their opportunity to believe. And this man was healed and his life became a billboard for what God had done in his life. And as a result, multitudes came to hear and see Jesus. And listen, I th- I, but what I love is that when he, the healing that he asked for, the cleansing that he asked for was simply to get his life back. And his life became a reflection of the power and grace of God. And listen, anytime a person's life is transformed, that's what should happen, that their life becomes a billboard for everything that Jesus can do because people look on and say that they want their lives to be transformed as well. Well, he comes down from the mountain, he sees this leper, he heals the leper, cleanses the leper, and then he walks a little further. You'll see in verse five, it says, now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, A a centurion came to him, pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home, paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. 
And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not seen such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. And if you pause there and give me your attention. Second thing I want to tell you about miracles is that miracles affirm Jesus' authority. Now let me give you a little bit of background to help you understand the story. Uh, a centurion was a Roman officer who was in charge of 100 soldiers. Generally, Roman soldiers were hated by the Jews because the soldiers were extremely antagonistic of the people that they uh, were in, uh, overseeing or oppressing or whatever. Um, but this centurion was loved by the Jews because he was what was called a God-fearer. Now, a God-fearer, whenever you read the Bible and you hear that someone is a God-fearing um, person, it means that they were a Gentile who had come to believe in the God of Israel and kept the feasts but they had not undergone the rite of circumcision. And so that's kind of where they made the cut or technically not made the cut. Um, and so, anyway, some people didn't get that joke, but <laughs> you'll get it later. And, uh, but uh, the Gospel of Luke actually gives us a, a little detail that we don't get as to why this whole thing takes place. Uh, so in Luke chapter 7, it says this. It says, A certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. We're good there. We got that. And he went, uh, and so when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, that's new, and uh, pleaded with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this thing was deserving. And this is what he says. It says, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. And so not only was he someone who was a God-fearer, but this is a person that was very generous towards the Jewish people and built a synagogue in the town where he was stationed. And so Jesus marvels over this centurion's faith, not because that not even being Jewish, he understood and had, had greater faith than Jews who knew the scriptures because he, all because he understood authority, that he had heard about Jesus and that he knew that someone who can speak like that and someone who can heal like that has authority. And that's why he says, all you got to do is say the word and it'll be done. And Jesus marvels at this soldier. And listen, I think that if we're honest, sometimes this is the place where, we're, where we falter, that in theory, we believe that God can do it. But then in, in practicality, do, do we really think he can do it? And sometimes that's why we either don't ask, or when we do ask uh, in prayer, we kind of falter, we, we give up. And um, I remember when my daughter Mia was five, and uh, she had asked me what a miracle was. And uh, I explained it to her. And, uh, and it's, a, you know, God doing something beyond our abilities, beyond our resources. So we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. We talked about the parting of the Red Sea. And uh, we were eating breakfast as we were talking about that. And we ran out of cereal. And, uh, and I say, oh, mama, I'll buy some more cereal when I go to the store. And she's like, don't worry, dad, I got this. And she's like, God, we're asking you to do a miracle and refill this cereal in Jesus' name. 
And I was like, well, that, that's, that's not how miracles work. Miracles are not a substitute for Instacart. And um, although I did check, but Tony the Tiger was still empty. And, um, but I said, listen, that's not how it works. I said, but that is the right heart. A heart that believes God for the miraculous. And listen, I think if we were honest, sometimes we would say that it's tough, especially when you're in a difficult circumstance and things seem insurmountable. Um, years ago, when I was a young pastor, not now, but when I was a young pastor, um, but I was, about, I was about 20, I had just graduated from college, so I was about 24 or so. Um, I, was, I was visiting a woman in the hospital she, um, her family had called the church and said, hey, our family member's in the hospital. Could a pastor come and visit her and anoint her with oil? And so uh, I, I got dispatched, and uh, they sent me, and uh, I, I walked into the room, and what I had seen as a young 24-year-old kid, I mean, it just floored me. She was hooked up. Uh, I had never seen a person hooked up with so many tubes and machines in, in my entire life, and I sat down. I didn't even know if she was conscious, and so I sat down, and I said, can you hear me? And she said, yeah. And I said, how are you? And she said, I'm in the most pain I've ever been in my life. And, um, and, and listen, if I'm being honest, I determined this, you know, because I was 24. I knew everything at that point. Uh, I was like, oh, this is it. This is it. Like, she's not leaving this room. And, uh, and so I went to pray for her. And part of me said, if I, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm being honest. Don't email me about this. It's just like, <laughs> I was 24, okay? I was barely shaving regularly. And, uh, but I was like, I don't even know if I should anoint her with oil. This is over. And, uh, but I did, because that's what I'm supposed to do. But, and I, I'm telling you, I offered the most half-hearted prayer. Um, and, uh, and I was just like, God, you know, we want you to heal. I mean, it's probably not going to happen. But uh, it wasn't maybe that bad, but that, it, you know, in my heart, that's probably what I believed. And so I prayed for her, and, and, uh, and then I left. The next day, another pastor went to go see her, and, uh, and I had seen him. I'm like, hey, what's up? He's like, oh, I just got back from the hospital. You vis- I visited this woman. I'm like, oh, I visited her yesterday. How's she doing? And he's like, oh, she was doing great. All the tubes were out. She was up sitting up eating. I'm like, what? <laughs> and she, he's like, yeah, she was doing awesome. And I'm like, no. What room was she in? Oh, it was on this floor. I'm like, I'm like you can- what? I couldn't believe it. I was in total shock. I mean, imagine, I prayed for God to heal. And I was so surprised when he did. And, and, and by the way, this, was a, this is a perfect illustration that it's never the person who prays. It's always the person you're praying to that is, is the one that, that, that's doing it. And, uh, and, and the point is this. Like, it is impossible to force a miracle to take place. It's impossible to predict when a miracle is going to take place. That is solely the work of God. But while you cannot force a miracle, you can prepare for a miracle. What do I mean by that? It, it, it's about trusting. Uh, one of the most famous scenes in all the Bible is in Exodus chapter 14, the parting of the Red Sea. And I'm telling you, every, I've seen all the movies about, I mean, I love Bible movies, and I've seen most of them. And um, by the way, the best Bible movie ever is a movie that came out in the 1950s called The Robe. So it's just an aside if you want to watch that. Um, it's, so anyway, but, um, but the, every movie... Moses stands up, he says, stand back, see the salvation of the Lord, and he holds up his staff, and the sea parts, it's this amazing thing, but the problem, I always think, like, why did they skip the other part? Because there's something that, mo- that happens right after that. Moses says, stand back, see the salvation of the Lord, then something else happens, and then um, 
you know, then the sea parts. And, and I'll read it to you. He says, stand back, see the salvation of the Lord. That's verse 13. It says, and then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the children of Israel will go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And I mean, it's like, stand back, see the salvation of the Lord. And then, you know, there's this moment and then he goes behind a rock and he's like, oh God, what's going on? What do you want me to do? And, and God's like, why are you crying? There's no crying in baseball. <laughs> like, get out there and do your thing. You got to lift up the thing and we're going to do it. And it's right. And there's this moment, right? Where we just think, but sometimes, listen, sometimes the miracle, like, especially if we're talking about healing, the miracle is totally supernatural. Sometimes the miracle is God providing a way. And, and so let me put it a different way. If you're praying for God to provide a hole in the ground, he's probably going to provide you with a shovel. All right? Now, uh, the challenge is sometimes we're facing a difficulty and the thing should be drawing us closer to God because God wants to do a work in our lives. But other times what we'll do is we, say, we just say things as Christians sometimes because we want to sound spiritual. But if you've been around, you know, for a little while, you just realize it's not. So people say, hey, man, I'm just trusting the Lord on that. I'm like, okay, what does that even mean? It means I don't do anything. And I just watch television. And like, okay, how does that... Uh, no, if you're trusting the Lord, whatever it is that you're praying about, act in alignment with what you're asking God for, right? If you're a single guy and you're praying for God to bring you a wife, God's going to do it. But it wouldn't hurt if you bought yourself a new shirt. <laughs> Maybe buy yourself a nice pair of pants. Maybe you take that He-Man shirt you've been wearing and just burn it once and for all. Let's move on, Right? Bring your Bible to church. Mark that thing up so when you open it, people see some ink on there, right? That way, the girl that you're, the kind of girl you're interested looks on and says, wow, this is a man of God. This guy loves the Lord. This is the kind of man that I want to marry, you know, because God's going to do it. God's going to put you together. But man, um, you are, it's not going to happen if you are uh, in your room playing Super Mario. Because you know what Super Mario's trying to do? in the game? Get the girl. You know what he's not doing? Playing Super Mario. He's out there jumping on top of turtles, taking mushrooms. I don't recommend that. Uh, but I don't even know if that's legal in this state, but he's out there trying to do it. And listen, and the girl you want is not impressed. She's not impressed with your video games. You know, I'm a level 90 garden gnome in this game I play. No one cares. And so, and the point is, listen, be the person that the person you're looking for is looking for. And while I'm on the subject, ladies, and I'm going to say this without getting into trouble, uh, my, my wife and I have a friend who just refused to wear makeup, refused to dress nice. This is a girl, by the way. Uh, it's 2022. You got to specify uh, dang it, I didn't make it one sentence without getting into trouble. So anyway, this was a girl. And <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Center the mechanism. So, so <laughs> but her answer was always the same thing. I want a man who's going to love me for me. I don't want a man that's going to care about what I wear or my makeup. I'm like, okay, that sounds good. 
She's still single, by the way. And, um, and, and it's just, you know, when I was in, when I was in college, when I was getting my undergrad uh, in theology, my, one of my, you know, and you get people from all different, you know, church backgrounds coming into these classes. And so one of the girls in the class asked the professor um, what he thought about girls wearing makeup, if that was okay or biblical or whatever. And he just gave this incredible answer. And he just said, you know, if the barn needs painting, paint it. And it's just like, and I just like, that's, it's just like, drop the mic, class dismissed. You know, we're done. I don't know where you go from there. It's just the greatest answer ever. But you know, in, um, and by the way, in, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, when God is calling David, he says this in, in, in verse seven, he says, man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. Those are two different truths that are being communicated. It's not to say that the outward appearance is more important. It's not. But God looks at the heart. But don't be surprised that people look at the outward appearance. They do. And so, but too often we think that, uh, you know, seeking the Lord just means I pray once and then sit on my hands. No, God wants to partner with us. God wants us to live his way and do our part so that he can do his part. I love this passage in Deuteronomy, and I think it explains so much. And we miss this in the church. Uh, in, in Deuteronomy, it says this, how could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? Uh, I want you to think about the audacity of that statement that one man is able to chase a thousand. And then two people, there's this e- exponential growth where two people can then chase 10,000. What, what is it saying about you know, one putting a thousand on the run, two putting 10,000 on the run? The statement, and the, the statement is used a few different times in the Bible to show what a person can do when the favor of God is on them. And God is telling the people that they can accomplish so much more, telling us that we can accomplish so much more when God is with us. This is why the favor of God is so indispensable. But where we mess up, is that, and we do this in the church all the time, we think that if God is in it, if God's blessing is on it, it's supposed to be easy. And listen, it's never easy. It's never easy. And so people give up because it's not easy, erroneously thinking that everything God wants us to do isn't easy. And I hear Christians all the time who give up and they'll say like, oh, God didn't open a door. And I'm, I'm just, and my always like, well, why didn't you crash through the window? Why don't you take a sledgehammer to the wall and create a door? Maybe that was your job, create the door. Uh, and, and because the fingerprint of God's favor is not that it's easy. The fingerprint of God's favor is that he has a way of exponentially blessing our effort and doing more than we ever could do on our own. Well, um, we're going to skip down a little bit. The next couple of verses are uh, Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. Apparently, they had a good relationship because if not, Peter been like, yeah, you know what? Jesus, let's move on. She's fine. Um, but he stops and heals her. And then... In verse 23, we read this. It says, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him. And suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with the waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, who can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? If you pause there, give me your attention. Last thing I want to tell you is that miracles display Jesus' care. Now, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I really like going to the mall at Christmas time. And 
I don't know why. I know it's easier to order everything online, and we do a lot of that. But there's just something to me. Every Christmas, I at least once want to go to the mall. I like being part of the hustle and bustle of it. And then, anyway, I like that. And so I remember a couple of years ago, my wife and I went to the mall to get a few things. And my problem is, is that I love the idea of going Christmas shopping until I've been there for 30 minutes. And then I'm just like, why do I make these decisions in my life? This is horrible. And, and every year I make the same decision because I forget that out, it's, it's a nightmare after 30 minutes. And so, and I'm just totally over it and I want to leave. So we get some stuff. And then, because the thing I think about is, oh, it'd be fun to go into the stores, see some people. And then you don't realize that you're walking around with all these bags. And, uh, and, and so now I've got all these bags that I'm walking around with. And my, my wife says, Bob, listen, if you want, just sit on the bench. I've got to go to two more stores, then we can get out of here. But I know you're tired, so sit on the bench. So I go and sit on the bench, and it's all these other husbands saying, like, hey, you too, huh? And, uh, and so they're all holding on to bags. And so, so I just sit, sit down. I'm, just, I'm holding these bags, and I sit down, and I just kind of close my eyes for a second. And then my wife starts, like, shaking me. And, uh, and I'm like, what? And she's like, Bob, you've been asleep for 30 minutes. And you've been asleep like this. So you're still holding the bags even when you were asleep. And, uh, and, and anyway, I said, yeah, that's, I, I have that gift. I, 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 can, um, I can't do this at night. I can't sleep. I have a hard time falling asleep at night. But at, during the day, I could fall asleep on command almost. Uh, my dad had that ability. He could just fall asleep on command. I remember one time uh, when I was in a band, we were playing a show, and they had these couches at this big club we were playing at, and, uh, and this, this, this music was blasting, and I just sat down on the couch, totally passed out, and, uh, and then the singer in our band was like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, dude, I'm tired, man. He's like, what are you, 80 years old? We're in a club. We're trying to play a show here, and I'm like, hey, man, just wake me up when it's time. It's time. So anyway, but apparently Jesus had this ability too, because he's just like, hey, we're going to go on this, I'm like, oh, you know what, we're going to, you doing, I'm going to go to sleep. And, uh, but he, apparently he could fall asleep anywhere. If he can fall asleep on a boat and there's a storm, that's saying something. I had this happen on Friday. We went to go see the new Thor movie and we got there early. We were 20 minutes early. And I'm like, you know, and then you got to watch these other commercials that they have. And I'm like, I'm not into that. So I said to Xander, I'm like, how long do I have? He's like 20 minutes. I'm like, all right, see you later. And I just put my hat down. My son said within 30 seconds, I was snoring. And, uh, and then he, he's like, dad, dad, movie starting. And so anyway, 20, you know, 20 minutes later, the movie's starting, and then I saw the movie, and I was like, wow, I would have been better off sleeping during the movie. Uh, this was trash. And so anyway, now, so there is this major storm on the Sea of Galilee, and the disciples think they're going to die. Now, remember, half of these disciples were fishermen, and not only were they fishermen, their dad was a fisherman. Their grandfather was a fisherman. They come from this long line of fishermen, and so they grew up on boats, so how bad did this storm have to be for them to go down to see where Jesus was saying, we are going to die, uh, and you're asleep? And now, um, so then the other question is, not only how bad is the storm, but like, why do we even have to allow this? Like, they get in the boat, apparently they're going somewhere. And so why is Jesus allowing the storm at all? And why can't my life just be smooth sailing, which is, what I think, what everybody is desiring anyway? Now, if we miss this, and this is important, if we miss this, we are going to miss what God really is seeking to do throughout our lives. And I wish this wasn't true, but it is, and so we got to deal with it. And that is that we don't grow in smooth sailing. We don't. We grow when there's storms. 
And, and I'm not saying you can't grow like incrementally when things are okay, but I mean, when you like, you know, when'd you really grow? How'd you really see you start trusting God? It's always some story of something, you know, we went through this rough patch, we had this situation, man, this storm, this trial, this thing came into our lives. And, um, and it might, because you ever notice that story, man, how did you grow? So, well, here's what happened. First, we went to Disney World. In fact, no story of great spiritual maturity starts at Disney World, right? No, no one gets there is like, man, I love Splash Mountain. Really? Yeah, this is a big place spiritual. I was baptized here. And, uh, right, nobody's saying that. Why? Because human beings don't usually grow when things are going well. We grow in the storm. And a lot of times, God brings the storm to grow us in the storm so we can handle what's coming next. And if you're married, you know this. You go through a difficult season, and afterward, it prepared you for what was coming next. And these disciples are going to an area that they don't spend a lot of time in. They're going to an area on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is an area called the Gadarenes, which was occupied by Gentiles and Jews that weren't really following uh, the Jewish law very well. And and they're going to see some things that are pretty scary. So Jesus puts them in the place, and this is important, he puts them in the place where they feel the most comfortable on a boat and then challenges them so that they learn who he really is. And this is what the trial always does. A trial will always bring something about, it reveals something about your growth and it will reveal something about who God is that propels our growth. Now, there's this one other detail I need to give you because Matthew doesn't give it to us, but Mark does. And this is a really important sentence that we need to know what Jesus said. And he says this in Mark chapter four, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let's cross over to the other side. Jesus told them they were going to the other side. This is why when he wakes them up, says, we're perishing. And he's like, why don't you believe? It's because he had told them that's where we're going. We're going to the other side. And you got to trust what I'm telling you, that if we're going to the other side, we're getting there. You see, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They wanted to see Jesus do great things. When they get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they're going to be encountered with two demon-possessed men that are waiting for them. He's going to heal them, and then he's going to deal with all the demons. He's going to send them, in a very strange story, send them into a herd of pigs, the first instance in history of deviled ham. And so, feel free to use that later. And so, now, but what happens to them is what happens to us. That is, I want God to take me where we're going, but I don't like the way he's getting me there. And I'm telling you that the storm sometimes is the only way to get there. Because there's some heavy stuff over there and we got to settle our trust before we get to the shore. One of the things that you learn, one of the things that spiritual maturity will teach us is that nothing is happening to you and everything is happening for you. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, it's one of the more famous verses in all the Bible. It says that, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose, and then the lesser known, which is the reason, verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Everything that God is doing in your life is for the purpose of making you more like Jesus. Why? Because he's for you. Because even the thing, everything that the enemy will throw our way, he's gonna use it for our good. Everything that the world tries to use against us, he's going to use for our good. Even the things that sometimes we try to do that, to sabotage ourselves, he will ultimately use it for our good. And, and it's kind of like this. Chocolate chip cookies consist of six ingredients, right? Butter, sugar, eggs, flour, baking soda, chocolate chips. Have you ever tasted these things separately? It's horrible. 
I remember one time I was making chocolate chip cookies and, and Livy was like, oh, can I try? I'm like, sure. And I gave them all to her separately. And, uh, and I'm like, here, you've now tried a chocolate chip cookie. She's like, this is disgusting. And, uh, and, and why? Because separately it's not good. But in its time, you can put it all together and it all works together for good. And sometimes the sweet is too sweet, needs a little bit of bitter flavor to kind of round it out. And the promise that we have is that nothing that happens in our lives is meaningless, that God is taking everything for his greater purpose in our lives and working it together for good. About three years ago, my wife and I get this phone call from her doctor that we need to come in because there's this mass that they need to um, biopsy because they think it might be cancerous. So we go in, they do the biopsy, they send it off to the lab, and, and with a charm that only a medical professional can do, they just deadpan, like, okay, come back in two weeks and we'll let you know. I'm like, thank you. Um, and, and maybe you've been through something like this. I hope not, but it's horrible. Like, the two weeks of waiting are just brutal. And, uh, you know, you're trying to not let your mind wander, and, you know, we were praying together and crying together and trying to be strong, trying harder not to let your mind wander because those are the hardest moments. And, um, and, and it was, and, and it's, it's, it's so difficult. And you know, it's weird because people who haven't gone through something like that, they hear about it and they don't know what to say. And so they kind of avoid you because they don't know what to say. And that's all right. But, but then there's the people who had gone through something like that. And I'm so grateful for those people because they understood where I was living, where we were living. And they would just encourage me. They're like, Bob, it's 10 days. You can do 10 days. I mean, it's seven days. It's a week down. You got a week to go. I mean, Bob, it's three more days. I mean, you've already done 11. We're almost there. It's a, it's a long weekend. But don't get ahead of this moment. And I remember friends telling me, don't get ahead of this moment. There is something that God is doing in your family in this moment. Because we have this challenge of living in the present. Um, some people spend all their time living in the past. And they just can ne- never get over the past to live in the present. And then other people, and I'm like this, I tend to live in the future. And the downside of living in the future is that like, I'm always thinking about what's coming next. And, and when you live in the future, the downside is that you tend to create a future in your mind that has no correlation to reality. But God was taking something bad and doing something good in me and in us because my life came into focus like never before in those two weeks of uncertainty. And you know how there's like these little things that bother you, these little squabbles you have with people, this, these, you know, friends that you have issues with and, and maybe other people that maybe fall into the, you know, halfway enemy category. All that stuff didn't matter anymore. None of it mattered. All the things that I was chasing were not important because I had a wife who needed me and I had three little kids who needed their dad. And the rest of it would have to figure itself out. And two weeks go by and we go in and they say, well, hey, it's, it's not cancer. It's just this mass and it'll kind of, you know, dissipate after a while. And, and we're crying and rejoicing. And, um, but in those two weeks, God was still working something good. And, and here's this other thing. We had a confidence. It wasn't a perfect confidence, but we had a confidence. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I told you the story of how my daughter... Uh, had contracted Steven Johnson syndrome and we thought she was going to die. At least that's what the doctors had told us. And um, I told you my story that I was sitting in the chair and I had this experience with God that night as my wife was laying in the hospital bed with Mia. My wife had this other experience um, that I didn't tell you about and I'll tell you about now is that um, when Mia was asleep and she was holding Mia and praying, God gave her this vision of the future 
of her um, standing on the side of, of, of a house. And um, Mia was an, an adult, and my wife was holding uh, Mia's daughter, our, grand, our granddaughter, in the future. And, um, and every time we were going through this, these two weeks, we, we, we talked about that, that this was our promise. This is the thing that Jesus said, let's go to the other side. And whatever promise God has given you when you're going through the storm and you think we're perishing, that we're not going to make it, you've got to hang on to the promise that he gave you that said, let's go to the other side. Because what was happening wasn't good and what we were going through wasn't good, but God was working something good in us. And maybe what you're going through isn't good and maybe what you're experiencing isn't good and maybe what you're feeling isn't good. But you and I can know for sure that God is working everything together for good because he's for you. And he's gonna work it all out for good even in the midst of a storm because he's told you, let's go to the other side. Let's pray together. And Lord, we wanna thank you for that. Thank you for the promise that we can go to the other side. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to do your work in us, even in the midst of a storm that we can experience your love, your grace, and more than anything, your peace. So God, continue to work in us, I pray, that we can trust you more. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Let's all stand together. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.